My name is uh, David Hershey. Uh, my family and I attend here. I work over at Penn State Berks. And I thought, what better way to start than with uh, a beheading? I mean, why not? Although, I guess, if you haven't seen the show yet, I averted spoilers. So, you, know, you never know what happens. But, uh, yeah, so this is from the HBO TV series Game of Thrones, which is very popular in some circles. And I have to admit that when it first, the show premiered probably about five or six years ago, I have to admit that I was a little surprised by how popular the show was, because I remember way back in the year 2000 when I was a junior at Penn State, going to the Penn State Student Bookstore and buying the third book in this fantasy series. And I remember reading this book as a college student and kind of trying to read it in such a way that if anybody walked past me, they didn't know that I was reading a thousand page fantasy novel because that wasn't necessarily uh, the kind of thing that made you popular on a on a college campus. I'm not sure if the popularity of the show has changed that. Uh, maybe it has, I don't know. But I like to tell people that I, I liked this before it was cool. So, But I, uh, when you watch the show, and this scene kind of gets into it, this, this for background, uh, the story takes place in like a mythical land called Westeros. Uh, it's a fantasy story. There's dragons, there's magic. And in this scene, the, the guy who's about to lose his head has confessed that his friend who was the king, when his friend was the king, his friend died, and Ned Stark, the guy getting his head cut off, had discovered that the king's sons and daughter were not actually his children. They were actually the production of incest between the queen and her brother. So yes, that kind of show. But um, he tried to bring this out publicly and, and get the king out of power because the, king didn't have, had, the new king had no right. But he was outmaneuvered and arrested. And in this scene, he's confessed his crimes with the promise uh, that he would be able to go and serve the realm in some other way. But I think you get an, an idea of why this show is so popular in this scene, because when I was reading the book all those years ago, and I think when people were watching the show when it first came out, like, we're conditioned when we watch action movies or when we read stories that we believe that the main character is going to be okay. Whether you watch Die Hard or Star Wars or like any story like that, sure, they're getting shot at, bad things happen to them, they're in danger, but the excitement is that somehow, some way, this person who is the main character is going to find a way to triumph in the end. So as you watch this first series of the season of the show, or as you read the first book, uh, Ned Stark is the main character. He's the central, and he was the most well-known actor in the first series of the show. So... Even though he's in this danger, we're like, okay, he's going to be fine. He'll be okay. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh. Oh, it's that kind of story. Like, And all of a sudden, when his head gets cut off, you realize that nobody's safe. All of a sudden, every character in this story, when they're in mortal danger, they're really in mortal danger. It's not the kind of story where you just know that they're going to be okay. It's the kind of story where you never know what's going to happen. And I think it's not just that characters in the story may lose their life. Because again, sometimes in other stories that we read, we might see a character who does give his or her life in some sort of self-sacrificial act. So yeah, maybe in a, in a story that we love, the main character might die, but usually it's some sort of great sacrifice that saves a lot of people. But again, Game of Thrones is different. They'll build up a character for two books, three seasons, and you're like, this person's going to 
defeat the bad guys. This person's going to save the world. And then they just lose their life totally out of the blue in a meaningless kind of way. But I think this is popular because deep down, each and every one of us knows kind of how life is. We don't like to talk about it. It's not the most pleasant topic to have a conversation about. But we recognize that when we wake up in the morning, there's no guarantees that we're going to go to bed that night. Getting into a car, crossing a street, like there's no guarantee. As much as we want to think we're going to live to a ripe old age, there's no guarantee ever in life. I had a friend back in high school. He went to college with me also. We weren't super close. His name was Matt, but we hung out a couple times. Uh, He was the kind of guy that, that would have liked Game of Thrones. He was someone who was, I think, either engineering or science major, someone you just knew was really smart, bright, intelligent, had a good life ahead of him, maybe was going to work in a lab and find cures to diseases, maybe he would get a job and make a lot of money, who knows? The sophomore year of high school, we got the word that he died in a car accident. That was the end. And obviously the response to that is, it doesn't seem right, it's just not fair. And I'm sure many of us know people who can think of stories from our own lives, of our friends or family, if the same thing happened. Or you just get this impression that, that what has happened is not what was meant to happen. It's not the way it was meant to be. So it's not just that in our lives, though, when we look at the world, that these things seem wrong. But we can look at it from another angle. And we can, it can appear that not only do things just happen that seem wrong, but it can appear that goodness and justice and mercy and all the things that we love in life are, are losing I mean, we may feel hopeless when we turn on the news in the morning and hear stories of of powerful people sending forth armies, destroying cities as women and children and and their families flee. We can feel despair when we look at the world and, and it so often appears that those who are ahead, those who have the power or the money to make a real difference, to fix something, but we look and it seems like they're using their power and their finance, financial security to just kind of care for themselves. And they're not really connected to the cares of normal people. Or we might just feel angry when we go through our normal life, our everyday life, and we try to do the right thing. We live a a life of justice or of always making the right choices, not cutting corners. And it appears that other people that we know are just getting ahead. Maybe they know how to sweet talk people better or schmooze the right people. And our, our moral choices maybe are what's holding us back in our darkest moments. So it's easy to look at the world and to see that this Game of Thrones type realistic world where anything can happen is a reflection of the world that we so often live in. And I think this this world is even reflected in the scripture at some time. Uh, Psalm chapter 10. The Psalms are a, it's a book of the Bible that's filled with poetry, uh, a lot of praise of God, but also a lot of just crying out to God and asking what God is doing in the world. And I want to read to you Psalm 10, the, uh, 11 verses from this, that I think really reflects the way a lot of us in our darker moments look at the world. It says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him, and in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all of his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. 
watching his secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. I think that psalm, like the world that we so often see, just reflects a a hopelessness, a despair, a why is the world the way it is, and is there any real hope of it becoming something better than what it currently is? We're wrapping up a series here at Koinos called Free at Last. Pastor Tim has been taking us through the, the book of Galatians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders in the church. Uh, it's about six chapters long, so you could probably read it in about 15 minutes or so. And if, if you've never read it before, you know, I know they always say there's Bibles in the back, so you can feel free to grab one and, and read it at any time. But in Galatians, uh, really what we see is that Paul is kind of painting a picture of what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. And in doing this, Paul is kind of painting this picture to compete with a different picture or a different story that, that another group of people are telling. So there's this group of churches in this region called Galatia, and there's different people telling them what it looks like to be part of God's family. Two different stories of what it looks like. So some groups, some teachers are saying, are telling a story where there's a very sharp line between who is in and who is out of God's family. And the way you know which side of the line you're on, whether you're in or out, is mostly based on how well you're able to perform, how well you can do religious rituals, how moral and ethical you live. However you want to put it, the focus is on what you've done. Almost we could say to earn God's favor. And this story that they're telling, obviously it's very different from the Game of Thrones story in many ways, but there's a lot of similarities I see there too. All these stories, whether it's the way we look at the world when we're in despair and hopelessness, whether it's the story being told these Christians in Galatia, whether it's the story of Game of Thrones, the thing that all these stories have in common is that the ultimate focus on, on how well you're doing, on where you are in life, is on you and your performance and your effort. Whether it's physical strength, uh, intellectual capability, knowing how to sell yourself, religious rituals, moral choices... All these stories say, if you want to get ahead, if you want to be on the right side of the line, if you want to succeed in life, if you want to win the game, you better work really hard and do it the right way. You are the primary player in these stories. And in Galatians, we see the Apostle Paul telling a different story to compete with that one. In Paul's story, there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. There's no religious or moral act you can perform to earn God's love, to keep God's love, to lose God's love. Like, God loves you because God is a God of love. God acted in the person of Jesus, becoming human. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, as a demonstration of that God loves us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus really redefines what victory is. All of a sudden, self-sacrifice, dying on a cross, something that no sane person would say is a victory or a good thing, but all of a sudden that changes and now victory can be seen as that sort of self-sacrificial act. And after this, a community of people forms around worship of Jesus, little groups of people that call themselves Christians. And in this community, 
It's not based on how well you perform, whether you're in it or out. Instead, all people are welcome, all people of different nations, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And you may find yourself then, in a church like this one, next to people that you really like. But you also may find yourself next to some people that you find a little bit odd, a little bit different. Maybe they have different backgrounds, different, different ways of doing things. And what Paul is saying is that all of these people, because of their faith in Jesus, are welcome into the community of God. And that brings us this morning to Galatians 6, the end of, of the letter. And I'm going to read the first ten verses. Again, you can read the very, very end if you so choose. But Galatians 6, uh, verses 1 to 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So when you read Galatians 6, there's a lot of practical stuff there. Carry each other's burdens, help each other out, lift people up, encourage other people, uh, look out for yourselves, do self-evaluation. But from the moment Tim asked me to speak on, on chapter 6, and I read through it, the first, the verse that stuck out to me most, that stuck out to me just the whole time I was preparing, was verse 9, where he says, do not grow weary in doing good. It's easy to grow weary in doing good. It's easy if you live your life and you want to make a difference in the world, you want to do good things, you want to follow rules, it's easy at times to be like, what's the point? Again, you look out your window, you turn on the news, and it seems like, why even bother anymore? Like, I think a temptation many of us have. I look at the darkness of the world, and maybe I, I want to make a difference in this thing or that area here. And after a while, it just starts to be like, why even bother? The most I can do is just kind of build up some walls around my house, protect my family, hope we have a good life. That's all I really can do. And I think when Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, he uses that imagery of, of planting seeds. And what he's saying to them is that when you do grow weary in doing good, you have to remember that your success, that any sort of further goodness that comes out of that is because God is going to come because God is working in the world. The seeds are being planted and the growth that comes is from God's Holy Spirit. The message to me, the message to us, I think, is when we become weary in doing good, when we look at the despair and the hopelessness that we see in the world, the way to persevere, to press through that, and to keep on keeping on is to recognize that there's other forces at work, that God is working, and that in the midst of the hopelessness of the world, there's hope. One of my favorite authors is J.R.R. Tolkien, because I'm a nerd. And uh, it's kind of funny that 
J.R.R. Tolkien is often compared to George R.R. R. Martin, who's the author of the Game of Thrones series. They both have the R.R. in their middle name. Uh, but J.R.R. Tolkien, if you don't know, he wrote The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, a bunch of other uh, stories in that realm. We also wrote a lot of literature, uh, literary analysis. And in my opinion, Game of Thrones, for as entertaining as it is, cannot hold a candle to Lord of the Rings, but that's a whole other story. But what's interesting, though, is that even though these stories are compared a lot, we see there that George R. R. Martin, his Game of Thrones series, again, it's very realistic. Like, it has that, even though there's all the weird stuff, like wizard, not there's wizard, but, you know, dragons and things like that, even though it's different, it's also that world we see where there's no guarantees, where anybody can lose it's realistic, whereas Tolkien was writing more mythology where he had what he called or would recognize as greater forces at work. He even coined a term called eucatastrophe, the word catastrophe with an EU before it, to define what he called the constellation of the happy ending. See, he talked about how the greatest stories, the stories that move you to the depths of your person when you're reading or watching or hearing a story, the best stories are the ones where the characters that you're following are put into such distress that you become hopeless for them. You're reading this story, you're just like, there's no way that they're going to get out of this. There's no hope. And then something happens. And they do get out of it. He defines this, he calls it the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy. And he went on to write in one of his essays that catastrophe is the mark of a good fairy story what he called fantasy stories, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to the child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art. Again, he says it brings you to tears because you're almost like there's no way that it's going to happen. There's no way they're going to survive. And then they do and you're just moved. And the reason why Tolkien would say that it brings you to tears or it has that effect on you as a great story is because he was a man of faith. And he believed that God was our creator with a capital C. But since we as humans are creating God's image, when Tolkien was writing stories, he would have said he was sub-creating or also creating in such a way, living out his calling. And that the reason why these stories then move us is because all these fictional stories point us to the real story, the greatest eucatastrophe that has ever happened, the story of Jesus. Because what darker moment in any story, real or make-believe, has there been than God becoming human to save us and then humans nailing that God to the cross? Tolkien would say that's the darkest moment in any story. That's the moment of hopelessness and despair. But then the turn came, the resurrection, the reminder or the realization that for as dark as this world may appear in the moment, if we look at it from another perspective or another angle, the real story of the world is not darkness and despair, but it's hope and life and resurrection. So we desire goodness. We, are, we, we have this feeling when things happen that it's not fair or it's not right. We desire these things because we're created by God and, and, and that desire reflects that the hope that, that, that God is working, that those seeds that Paul talked about in Galatians 6 that are being planted are going to grow and sprout into something good. So really we have, we could say, two 
stories that are competing for our allegiance or two stories that are competing for the way that we're going to view the world on a day-to-day basis. There's that, that Game of Thrones story, that realistic story, the story where it's all on you as a human. And maybe if you're, if you're just visiting this morning, you're not so into the God thing, you're like, hey, when I get down, when I, when I grew weary of doing good, I just have faith in humanity. And that'd be a fun conversation to have afterwards. We can talk about that. But I don't have faith in humanity. I look at what humans have done throughout history, and I love the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a soldier for the Russians in World War II. Afterwards, he ended up being sent to Siberia, working in the, the work camps, the Gulag. And he eventually wrote a long book, which I have not read, called The Gulag Archipelago, I think is how you say it. Where he really uh, revealed a lot of the evils of the communist totalitarian uh, world. But he's talking about this idea that some of us have that there's like good guys and bad guys. And we can just kind of like get rid of the bad and we'll be okay. And what he says is, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So what Solzhenitsyn is saying is that it's not as simple as just saying, we get rid of you over there and we can create a good world because who's going to create that good world? We're all infected with the evil. Left to ourselves, we humans can't do it. So the competing story then is the story that, that Paul is telling in Galatians, the story that Tolkien would have been a believer in. The story that, that yeah, we're called to do good, but we do good with the recognition that we're coming alongside of God who is already working for the good, that there are other more powerful forces at work, and that even if we have hopelessness or despair for a moment, that in the long run, in the big picture of the universe, good is going to triumph because God is working. I think the question we have, the question we face every day, is which story are we going to allow to drive us as we live? Uh, philosopher Alistair McIntyre says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Which of these stories we think is the real story of the world? Is it the story of human strength? Is it the story of God's graciousness, God's working? Which of these two stories do we think is true? And then how are we going to live from that. I think we can look at history and find many people who took the Tolkien path, the Paul path, who believed that God was working in the world and were able to persevere in the midst of despair and do a lot of good things. One of my personal heroes is a man named William Wilberforce. He lived in the 1700s. He was elected to Parliament, elected to Parliament in Britain as a relatively young man. After about five years in Parliament, he experienced a conversion took Christian faith seriously for the first time in his life. And because of this, he thought about leaving work in the government, leaving parliament, to become a pastor, a preacher. He was uh, given the advice not to by John Newton. Side note, John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, also living at this time. And John Newton told him to stay in the government because God could use him in that, in that realm in other ways. Well, soon Wilberforce came in contact with the group of abolitionists because at this time, uh, slavery was still illegal in Britain and America too. And the abolitionists were able, there was only a small group of them. Most people just 
Slavery was part of life, they didn't really question it. But a small group of abolitionists managed to win Wilberforce to their cause. And in 1789, Wilberforce stood before Parliament and made a speech about the evils of slavery and presented a bill to make slavery illegal. And it failed. Over the next number of years, Wilberforce continued to make speeches against slavery, to try to convince his peers to fight against slavery. He kept putting out bills to make slavery illegal. And he kept failing. It was not until 1807, almost 20 years later, that with Wilberforce looking on in tears, the law finally passed and the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire. You see, Wilberforce was moved by the injustice of slavery that he had seen in the world. He said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And what he knew about injustice and and suffering is what motivated him to do all that he had in his power to end that injustice. But I have to think that over the course of 20 years, there were days when Wilberforce woke up and was like, I just can't go on. I'm weary of doing good. It's never going to happen. It's going to keep on. Slavery is going to be here forever. And even maybe if I get rid of slavery, there's probably some other thing that I learned about yesterday on Twitter that you didn't have Twitter back then. But, you know, there's some other thing that's going to come along that's also evil. And just this, this feeling that, of why go, why go on. But again, Wilberforce was a man of faith. And he believed that, that God's dream for the universe did not include slavery. He also uh, said, Accustom yourself to look first at the dreadful consequences of failure. Then fix your eyes on the glorious prize which is before you. And when your strength begins to fail, and your spirits are well nigh exhausted, let the animating view rekindle your resolution and call forth in renewed vigor the fainting energies of your soul. So what he's saying is, is when you, when you grow weary of doing good, raise your eyes up and look at God's vision for the world and let that vision of the future be what drives you to not grow weary. Or, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., Wilberforce would have believed that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And speaking of Martin Luther King Jr., we could say he had the same vision as Wilberforce. We all hopefully know the story of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not going to go into much detail. But one of the things that strikes me most about him is if you listen to his final speech the night before he was shot and killed, you almost get the impression that he knew his time was nearing an end. He ended his final speech with these words. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. <clears throat> and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. You see, Martin Luther King had this vision of what God, he had a dream, of what God was going to do in the world. And this, this dream, this vision did not include Jim Crow laws and segregation. As a, as a Christian pastor, he had a belief that God was working. And even in the moments of despair and hopelessness, and I wasn't living them, but I imagine there were a lot of them because there still are today. In the moments of despair and hopelessness, he was able to press on because of that faith that it wasn't all resting on his shoulders alone, but there was a God existing in the world who was working towards that same dream. Now, I know that looking at uh, people like Wilberforce, people like Dr. King, people that we read about in history books, people who 
did great things can be a little daunting to us normal people as examples. But I want to take a moment to talk about my, my grandfather, Daniel Hershey. He uh, passed away about a couple weeks ago at the age of 87 with 14 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, and I think one great-great-grandchild. After he passed away, my, my grandma asked me to share some words at the funeral. I guess the whole public speaking thing, I don't know. So I went and tried to contact some of my cousins to just get some stories from them. To I mean, I guess I was probably kind of paranoid. Like, what if I shared like my memories and other people were like, that's not actually how you want to look. So like, I wanted to make sure that just get some more feedback, get a, get a fuller picture than just my own personal memories of our grandfather. It was cool, though, that as I talked to a number of my cousins, just kept hearing similar things being said. We all remembered our grandfather as a man who often had a smile on his face, didn't say much, but was also a really hard worker. I think more than one of us used the words quiet strength. My grandfather was a farmer. He worked for decades in the fields, farming. He volunteered in his church, in his community, and after he retired from being a farmer, him and my grandma traveled around the country for a number of years, volunteering uh, in various service projects throughout, throughout the country. And I'm sure my grandfather, as a, as a man of faith, I mean, he was a farmer, so he would go out and plant the seeds, the tobacco, the soybeans, the corn, whatever it was. But you can only do so much when you're a farmer. You can plant the seeds, you can fertilize, you can water the fields. But it, there comes a point when you're at the mercy of other forces, the weather, things like that. And I imagine my grandfather, as a man of God, probably prayed for good weather for, for his fields. Well, my grandfather also planted seeds, I believe, in the lives of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He planted seeds by his example, the way he, again, carried himself as a person who worked hard, who just was a good man. And I think he certainly wanted all of his family. He wanted his children, his grandchildren. He certainly wanted us to live a certain way. He would have wanted us to have faith in Jesus the way that he did. He would have wanted us to be people who carried ourselves with integrity, people who worked hard in our vocation, in our careers, who were honest, all these different things. But he could only do so much. He couldn't come to school with all of us or, or force us to make the right choices. Obviously, my grandfather could set an example, could maybe say some things. But then, any growth that came was outside of his control. I believe my grandfather had, in his own way, the same vision that some of those greats from history, like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King had. A vision of what God desired in the world, and a faith that God was working, and even in the moment if things didn't look too good, that God was working the good on a long-term basis. So, as we're motivated then, by the story of what God is doing in the world, as we're reminded that God is working, I would encourage us that when we do grow weary, to remember that story over and over again. As we're motivated by the story of what God is doing in the world, may we not grow weary in doing good. I just want to end with two points, kind of trying to sum up. And the first point is, we do need to get to work. We need to get to work because Paul doesn't write to the Galatians that, hey, God's going to bring the harvest, so go take a nap, it's cool. Like, 
God's working, so you don't need to do anything. Just sit in church and be happy that you're there and, you know, go to heaven when you die. My grandfather wasn't like, hey, God will send good weather or bad, so I don't need to plant the seeds. Like, we still have a job to do. The seeds don't plant themselves. We can go back to Galatians 6 one more time and look at some of those other things. I didn't get to mention this morning that Paul gives as commands that we're to do that I think are illustrations of this. He talks about carrying one another's burdens. Part of being a part of this community is helping each other out, lifting each other up. When somebody needs help, we come alongside each other and assist them. I think carrying one another's burdens can mean a lot of other things too. It can just, it can be the idea that, or the hope that people can change. That the way somebody is right now is not the end of their story. That even if from moment to moment or on a dark day, somewhere, you look at somebody and it's like, there's no hope that we're going to turn our life around. We can't change anybody, but we continue to come alongside that person in love and encouragement and hope that in the big picture of things, change will come. Or we can look at that passage, the, the, the verse we mentioned earlier um, about carrying your own load. This idea of self-examination. And we can think about the work that we need to do is the work that we need to do. We don't need to compare ourselves to other people. We don't need to say, how come I don't get to do that job? Or how come I'm not like this person? How come I'm not like Martin Luther King or Daniel Hershey or whoever it might be? I think we're called as, as humans, if we consider ourselves people of God, we're called by God to each be in a different area. And part of getting to work is simply figuring out what we can do where we're at in the moment already. Knowing that we are faithful to God's call and not compare ourselves to what we think other people expect of us. And then Galatians 6.10 had this passage where it said, uh, do good to all people, especially those in the family of, of believers or the family of God. Which, when I first read that, that also struck me, because that seemed kind of odd. Aren't we supposed to love everybody? How come we only are supposed to care for people in the family of church community? That doesn't seem right. And that's like maybe a whole other Sunday morning, someday, I don't know. But when I thought about it, I think what he means by that is do good to the people that you know what they need or you know how to do good to them. Do good to the people that are close to you. Don't try to save the whole world. There's a lot of problems out there that I'm clueless on, but I may get an email or a Facebook message that's saying, here's this thing you need to fix it, do this, do that. And not that that's bad enough that I shouldn't learn more, but I think there are times when it's so easy to want to just do everything and save the world and fix all the problems, when really what we need to do is just get back to the things we know a lot about and the places that we can actually make a difference. When I hear the words, do good to those in the family of God, I think the biggest takeaway for us might just be fix the problems that you know how to fix and trust God to maybe fix the other ones. And finally, uh, as we get to work, once again, we need to tell and retell and retell and rehear and reread and re-listen and just keep getting the story into our hearts and minds. Because that, that Game of Thrones story, that realistic story, that story of hopelessness and despair, that's so easy. I mean, I, I go, I, you turn the news on and that story just pours over you. It's so easy for that story to be the story that we live our lives and believe that's the real story of the world. But I think as we keep hearing the story of 
Jesus, that story that Paul was talking about to the Galatians, the story of the cross and the resurrection, the story that God is working, the story that motivated people from J.R. Tolkien to Martin Luther King Jr. to my grandfather to many people I'm sure all of us know. That's what's going to drive us to carry on and to continue to do good in the midst of any hopelessness we face. I want to end with uh, the end of Psalm 10. I read the beginning of Psalm 10 earlier. And maybe you didn't know there was more, but it's kind of cool because Psalm 10, like a lot of the Psalms, starts off really depressed. Life sucks. There's evil forces working. Bad people are doing this. How come things aren't right? Where is God? I don't know. I love how Psalm 10 ends. So I'm going to kind of almost use it as a closing prayer to the this morning before we end the Q&A. So Psalm 10, he says, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, you do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself or herself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from this from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful morning. Thank you for... Being the God, being being God, being a God who is active in the world. Help us to see your activity. Help us to see that you are working in, in the big things, even the small things. As we uh, seek to live a life as your servants, as we seek to do good in the world, give us the perseverance to work through any despair and hopelessness we come upon. Yeah, may we. Be grateful in this. In Jesus' name, thanks.